Good morning. Hmm. Well, my suspicion is that in churches across America, in the lives of individual believers, Easter is now tucked away for another year. The decorations have been put in boxes and stored near the Christmas trees, and we can get back to normal. Only that's not the way it's supposed to be. I had somebody ask me this week, um, and they didn't mean anything by it, but, but they said, um, so does that sermon on the resurrection, does that conclude the series of teachings that you've done from, from John? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but see, it's a common misunderstanding that Easter is kind of the, the climax of all things. And so, you know, everything that comes after Easter is sort of anticlimactic. When the fact of the matter is, Easter sets in place the foundation for everything that comes after. We've not tucked Easter away for another year, not at all. It is the basis for everything that we do. And, and it is why I entitled this message this morning, Something New Begins. Because there's something that began that Easter that we, of course, celebrated Easter last week, but we are in the lineage, the heritage of what has come out of that first Easter. And, and so as we, as we move through the rest of the Gospel of John and even beyond John into the things that come next, what we find is that the Easter is the jumping off place for us. I want you to think back to that same weekend particularly that day. We finished in John chapter 20 last week with verse 19, but I want to start with verse 19 because, because what we have is uh, we, we've seen what happens in the, the morning revelations on that day. It started with Mary making her way to the tomb, and then there were other women that, that made their way. Uh, there was a lot of coming and going. John and and, and Peter have a race to the tomb, and John gets there first, but Peter bursts in to see the empty space. John follows and assesses the evidence and comes to the conclusion that, that it must be a resurrection. It's what the evidence pointed to as unlikely, as, out of, as extraordinary a conclusion as that might have been. It, it just fit the evidence. We saw the resurrection satisfies our intellectual needs, but we saw also that it satisfied our emotional needs. There was Mary, the weeping one, who was there, and, and, and she was caught up in grief and, and, and hurt and, and, and sadness until Jesus spoke her name, and everything changed. We're going to look at that story, the, the appearances to the disciples, but but just use your imagination, your sanctified imagination for a moment and think about 
what was happening on the other side of this great divide on that first Easter morning throughout that, that day as rumors of a missing body and maybe even a resurrection from death to life were circulating, you have this interesting uh, consternation that must have certainly captured the minds of the enemies of Jesus. I mean, think of the, not least of which was the Sanhedrin, that leadership body that served as uh, the dominant force in, in Jewish culture, uh, made up of 70 uh, 71 elders, a uh, high priest and 70 elders, uh, they couldn't have been happy. They must have been tremendously upset at what would be considered the defection of two of their members, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who had apparently been secret followers of Jesus. And now at his death, of all times at his death, they step out, they step up. And they publicly declare their faith for him. They were involved in the burial of the body. The Sanhedrin couldn't have been happy about that. There had been a couple of days of calm in the, in the city of Jerusalem because people were busy with their Passover festivals. They were there with family and everybody was preoccupied. But, but very early on this Sunday morning, the guard had come terrified with tales of angels and moving stones in an empty tomb. In the praetorium where Pilate was, he certainly had received the report of the centurion who had been present at the cross, who was reporting on the death of Jesus. He must have described the extraordinary events that took place that day. There was an earthquake. There was darkness in the middle of the day. And Jesus, he died so unexpectedly. Why unexpectedly? You expect a man on a cross to die. But these were men who had seen death on the cross hundreds of times. And they knew how it was drawn out and they knew what was involved and how long it took. And yet they stood and watched this man as he voluntarily dismissed his spirit because his work was finished. I wonder if the centurion that reported to Pilate was the same one in another gospel that watches Jesus from the foot of the cross and says, indeed, this man was the Son of God. If Pilate got that report, who knows what that piece of intelligence would have done to him, awakening those fears that he was already grappling with, that somehow there was a God-man who was under his charge. And now this morning... He'd just received news that not only was the death extraordinary, but there was a, 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 an open tomb. His official Roman seal had been broken, and there was a highly suspicious story from the chief priest that the, 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 the disciples had stolen the body. They're in a tizzy. It's interesting in verse 19. What we saw at the end of, of last week was the disciples, they were grieving for the most part in their own homes, scattered. But at the rumor that something had happened, they came together and they assembled themselves, but they were still uncertain. Had the Jews taken the body? Were they going to come for the disciples next? And so they had gathered in the room and remember, they had shut the door and locked it. And, he, and John tells them, because they were afraid of the Jewish leadership. And Jesus 
steps into that room, how we don't know, passing through doors. There's, there's no explanation, but he was there. And he starts by saying, peace. Well, let's begin right there. Because what's interesting is we have a flip-flop about to take place. The disciples have been in hiding. They've been afraid. They've been behind locked doors hoping that nobody knew where they were meeting. While all of the enemies of Jesus, they'd had a very comfortable weekend, smug, certain that they had solved this pesky little Jesus problem. But on Easter Sunday morning, it flipped, and all of a sudden there's a consternation in the minds and the hearts of the enemies and the disciples at the appearance of Jesus, they're going to instantly change. You see, Sanhedrin, Sadducees, Pharisees, Pilate in his praetorium, Roman soldiers, what does it matter once Jesus has conquered death and come back to life? This is where the story takes on a future look. I've called it the empowerment that defines mission. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. Now when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were together due to fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. All right, the empowerment that defines mission. Jesus comes to them, and he's very patient. He deals gently with their difficulty. They're hiding behind locked doors, and he comes and he says, peace. But I want you to see how quickly the situation changes. I mean, what is there to be afraid of once you realize that Jesus is alive, so come what may, we're good. Instantly, Jesus turns their minds in a totally new direction. We understand that when a man is dying, we give special weight to his dying words. It's sometimes called a dying utterance. A dying utterance can be uh, submitted as legitimate evidence in court because the expectation is that as a man is facing his own mortality, there's no longer any uh, agenda. There's no reason to lie. His last words have a weight to them, a solemnity to them that makes them uh, important. And so we always want to know when somebody dies, we want to know what, what was the last thing that he said? What's like that, but less common, if the last words that a man speaks before he dies are important, isn't it interesting to consider that when a man comes back from the dead, 
the first words he speaks are important. You see, there were some things Jesus had taught these disciples for three years, and we've seen even just in the book of John the, the, the advanced level of teaching that he took them through just that last night before the cross. But there were some things that he just couldn't say to them before he died, paid for their sins, and was resurrected conquering death. Now he can say some things that he couldn't say before. And it's interesting that when he comes into that room and he says, peace, he doesn't pull up a chair and say, okay, tell me everything. What happened? What was going on in Jerusalem while I was, while I was suffering? I mean, what's the word on the street? You know, Jesus did that occasionally. Hey, what, what are people saying about me? He would ask them. Well, they think this, they think that. He doesn't come back and say, okay, fill me in. I've been away a couple of days. Fill me in. No, he immediately says, all right, everything that has gone before has now climaxed, but you are now moving from your role as followers to now you are becoming sent ones. They're transitioning from disciples, one who follows a teacher, to apostles, one who is sent out as a representative. What Jesus does is he comes to them in this moment. This is his first appearance collectively to the disciples. And, and he says, uh, after he'd said, peace be to you, it said, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. He gave them the evidence uh, that, that they were yearning for. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, here's the thing. He says the same words, but there are two different meaning, or two different points here. When he comes into the room, they are confused, they're frightened, they're scared, they're hiding, and he says, peace. He's offering them peace in the moment of their immediate circumstance. But now they see that he's there, their attitude has changed, their, their energy level is up, they're excited because Jesus is alive. And then he says, peace. This is not peace to change their circumstances. He's already offered them and given them peace to change their circumstances. Now he says peace because he's about to give them a charge. He's giving them peace for what's coming. And he says these words, even as the Father has sent me, so I'm now going to send you. You see, what happens is the transition from disciple to apostle, the transition from follower to sent one, to representative, is this moment where Jesus says, my work that, I, that the Father gave me to do, I came, I did it to the very end. I did it until I could say, it is finished. But now, my mission is being assigned to you. Out of my work will come your work. My work in the world will continue through your participation and not just through that inner circle of disciples, but by every disciple that follows Jesus for 2,000 years. It's interesting. We don't do this very often at Evergreen. Uh, but it, it's kind of a rare thing. But, but occasionally we have uh, a ceremony, a, a worship time that we call ordination. Maybe you've been to an ordination service. An ordination is when, when, when somebody uh, exhibits the characteristics of the call of God on their life. 
And the church can recognize that God is at work in that life and that, that, and that this person is being called into uh, a role as a shepherd, as pastor. And, and, and we, we, we put them here and the church comes together and, and we lay hands, we put hands on them and we pray for them. Now, if you've ever wanted to say, where does ordination come from? Well, the standard answer that most people will give is say, well, Acts chapter 13. That's where Paul and Barnabas were in the church at Antioch. And the Holy Spirit said, I want you to send Paul and Barnabas out to do the first organized mission effort of, in Christian history. And it says that the church came together and they laid on hands and prayed for Paul and Barnabas and then, uh, and then sent them off. And they say, well, that's, that's where ordination begins. No, that's, that's an example of ordination. But ordination begins right here in this passage. You see, picture it this way. They don't know what the church is yet, and the church hasn't been officially birthed, but Jesus is speaking to them as the infant church. In fact, what's happening is all the words in these verses that Jesus is speaking... Um, are in the plural. Now, I'll explain in just a minute why that's so important. But, but here, it's, it's, if, you can, if you can picture in your mind, it's like each one of those disciples as members, as, as what will be leaders, pastors in this church that's about to be birthed in a matter of weeks, it's as if they're being ordained by nail-scarred hands placed on their heads and on their shoulders. He's giving them a mission. And it's a mission that has been passed down from generation to generation. He said, I want you to do what you've seen me do. I want you to tell people the truth about God. I want you to tell people the truth about sin. I want you to tell people the truth about the possibility of redemption. I want you to tell people the truth about what it means to be separated from God and then made right with God in relationship. I want you to do ministry to touch the lives of people so that they can sense that God is moving in their sphere of existence. Everything they had seen Jesus do, he says, I'm now handing that off to you and I'm delegating authority to you. Now, where does that come from? Well, look at what, he's, what it says here. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, when he had given them the charge, it says he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a, a student of God's word, the question that should come to your mind is, now, wait a minute, I thought, wait, I thought the Holy Spirit came to the church in Acts chapter 2. I mean, isn't that when the church was born? Yes. Let me explain the difference. What, what's happening here is not the gifts of, of the Spirit that, that are given individually uh, to followers of Jesus. That comes in Acts chapter 2, and those gifts are immediately put to use as Peter stands up and preaches, and, and the disciples begin to function in, in their spiritual giftedness. What's happening here in John chapter 20 is not the gift of, of, of spiritual gifts, but He's, but Jesus is giving them the gift of authority, spiritual authority delegated to the church. It says that he breathed on them. 
Let me explain why that's such an important word. This is written in Greek, but that verb, breathe, translates a Hebrew verb that shows up in two very important places in the Old Testament. The first place is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, when God had taken the, 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 the earth, the dirt, the ground, and fashioned it into uh, the shape of a man who would be created in his image, it says that God breathed on him, and he breathed life. He animated the physical structure with the life that could only come from God. Well, Exodus, not Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 37, we see the same thing. The prophet is, is, is with God, and God gives him a vision, and he says, what do you see in this vision? And, and Ezekiel goes, well, I see a battlefield. I see a valley where a great battle has been fought, and there are fallen soldiers there, but it didn't just happen because it, it's mostly just bones. It's just skeletons, and, and and they've been there a minute. I mean, they're they're parched in the in the sun. They're bleached. They're, they're, there's nothing but but the remnants of an army. And God says, "Can this army live?" And Ezekiel, smart enough to go, only you know, God. Listen, anytime you don't know the answer when God asks you a question. It's okay to go, only you know. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 37 that God breathed. And the bones began to connect themselves. And the muscle began to take shape. And the ligaments and the joints were held together. And the skin was there. And God raised up a mighty army from nothing but the remnants of death. Because he breathed life. He animated something. That's what's happening here. Jesus says to these disciples, I'm now handing my mission into your hands. I've completed the part that only I can complete. Now I'm giving to you the ripple effect, the remainder of the work to be done, and I'm delegating to you the animation, the energy to make the mission possible. Now look what he says. He breathes on them to give them the Holy Spirit, really, to give them the, the authority of the Spirit to do this mission. And then it says, then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Let me explain that verse because that's a verse that's real easy to misunderstand. In fact, I've heard people quote that verse as though God has given to each one of us the individual rights to forgive or not forgive the sins of, of people that we meet. That's not what's going on here. Remember I said that all the words in this paragraph, Jesus is speaking in the plural. He's not giving us as individuals the power of forgiveness or lack of forgiveness. He's giving us as the church collectively the authority to speak truth about what can what is forgivable and what will not be forgiven. In other words, he's giving to them what we have also received in this heritage of 2,000 years. He has given us as a church the privilege and the responsibility to speak to our generation about the, the availability of forgiveness, how your sins can be forgiven. And when that availability is rejected, he has given us the responsibility to announce that your guilt has not been removed. Listen, this is a weighty thing that we're talking about. 
But Jesus is not giving us individually the power over somebody else's sins, but he is giving to the church the responsibility to speak truthfully about sin and forgiveness and weighty topics. You see, we live in a generation that doesn't talk about sin anymore. I mean, the word itself has, has left our cultural dictionary. We have lots of other words that we substitute, but we don't talk about sin. They say, well, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's church language. Yes, it is. Because we've been given the responsibility in a culture that refuses to acknowledge that anything is sinful, we've been told to be honest about what is sinful and what is not sinful. Here's what the enemy does in, in, in our generation. He has turned things on its head, and the Bible is very clear about this. It says, man, it's a dangerous thing to be a person who calls good evil and calls evil good. And yet that's exactly what's happened in this generation is that we have the enemy leading out in our culture so that things that the Bible very clearly says are not acceptable, things that are sin that keep us separated from God, our culture says, nah, that's just, that's, that's so outdated, that viewpoint. I mean, you, you can have any truth you want. Truth is relative. You make up your own truth. You know, I, I, it's not profitable to have that kind of conversation with too many people, but occasionally I've, I've had people that, that, that were open enough to the conversation to have it. But, but say, all you, ha all you have to do is you, you say, well, well I, I like your car better than I like my car. So my truth is, I'm going to steal your car because <laughs> it's nicer than mine and I want it. And their response is, no. You can't do that. Well, why can't I do that? That's my truth. Oh, yeah. Well, my truth is that's my car. Oh. So now we have competing truth claims. See, once you get to the reality that, that relative truth always and inevitably produces competing claims, it produces two claims to truth that are contradictory to each other, when they say, well, you can't take my car. I don't care if that's your truth. Oh, so, so it's not that, that everybody has their own truth. There is still a standard somewhere. There is an objective standard of reality that you're appealing to. Why can't I take your car? Because it's wrong. Oh, well, they're game over. Because the minute you tell me something is wrong, you have now appealed to a reference point. Uh, an, an unmovable, objective standard of behavior by which we evaluate right and wrong. What Jesus is saying here is he's giving the church the responsibility, knowing that the first part of the 21st century was going to roll around and we were going to have no idea how to evaluate truth claims. He said, I'm going to give the church the responsibility of speaking truthfully about truth so that there's a way to understand certain things are wrong. They separate us from God. Other things are right, and, 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 and God is pleased by those things. And we're to tell people how you go from being separated 
from God by our sin through the atonement of Christ into relationship with God, where now he says we're actually created specifically to do good works. It breaks my heart to see pastors, some of which I've known for years. It breaks my heart to see pastors and by extension to see churches now saying things like, you know, hey, just come join us. Bring whatever you got, whoever you are. Everything is okay. God loves you just the way you are. God does love you. He loves you desperately. He loves you enough that we had to go through the cross to get to Easter. He loves you desperately, but not just the way you are. He loves you enough that he wants you to be the way he meant for you to be. He created you with a plan to be in eternity, to be in fellowship with him, to be like Jesus. And because we couldn't get there on our own, he took it on himself to make a way so that we could be what we were meant to be. Quit telling people that God loves you the way you are. Tell them he loves you so much, he's got a better plan for you than the way you are. It's a lie when truth is up for grabs. Jesus gave the church the authority and the responsibility to be this witness to the truth in every generation. And we are so afraid that somebody somewhere is not going to like us that we've taken that light and we've hidden it away. These are his first words. They carry some weight. I want you to understand, tell people how to be forgiven and tell them that when they turn away from that forgiveness, they will retain the guilt of their sins and they'll be judged by that standard. This is our mission. And we've been empowered by the Spirit to have the authority to do the mission. But now here's an encounter that declares truth. Verse 24, it's interesting that John goes out of his way to say that that first night when Jesus comes to the disciples, but Thomas, one of the 12, who was called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. There's one missing. Verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. (laughs) But he said, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, it's interesting. I mean, my first question here, and this is where sometimes my sanctified imagination runs away with me. My first question is, why wasn't Thomas there? I mean, I really pondered this. Apparently, he's the only one that wasn't there that first night. Why? And I have to confess, I, I, I tried to find some spiritual explanation, but I've been a pastor for so long that I couldn't help myself. My mind just kept going to the same old tired excuses I've heard my whole life. 
I mean, really, the question is not just why was Thomas missing from the assembly of God's people, but, but why do any of us miss from the meetings when God's people come together? Did Thomas say, well, I'm really busy right now. I mean, it's Passover season. I've got a lot going on. I've got family in town. I'm too tired. It's been hard. A lot of celebration going on. I think I'll stay home. I'm too tired tonight. Did he say it's dangerous to go? I think we might be courting trouble by meeting in groups. There's a lot of uh, uh, you know, upset people right now. The religious climate is not very safe. Uh, I think I better stay home. Did he say, I think I can get more by staying home and just, you know, just reading the Bible for myself. I'll just, I'll just worship God on my own. <laughs> this is probably my favorite. If Peter's going, I'm not going. I mean, we all know what Peter did, and, and he'll probably be up front, bold as brass, just like he always is. I'm not going if Peter's going to be there. There's not going to be any sense of the Lord's presence. He's gone now. It's going to be dead and dull. Why bother going? I liked it when Jesus taught, but these other guys, the preaching's not going to be that exciting, and so I, I don't think I'm going to go. Or did he just say, feels like it might rain? The bottom line is when you decide that you don't want to be with God's people, any excuse will do. It doesn't much matter what you pick because you've already decided. But I tell you what I love. I love when people say, man, we cut our vacation one day short and we came home on Saturday instead of Sunday because we had to be with God's people in church. I love when they say, man, we, we were supposed to be somewhere else, but we rearranged things so that we could be here, and boy, we're glad we did. I had somebody this morning, this morning in, an, in the early service who said to me, we drove all the way home from Indiana yesterday because we wanted to be here, because we see God's work in the faces of the people that when, when we come to worship. I don't know why... why Thomas wasn't there, but he wasn't. But I have to hand it to him. He's been, he's been given a bum rap. You know, we call him Doubting Thomas, which is really kind of a shame because, um, you know, he's really been a pretty solid disciple through the whole story. I mean, all the way through the Gospel of John. Remember, it was Thomas who said, when Jesus said, hey, we're going to go to Bethany, and then on to Jerusalem, and everybody was like, hey, Jesus, this is a really bad idea. There are people down there. They want to kill you. They want to execute you. Uh, we, we should keep, keep our distance. It was Thomas that said, you know, um, if we die, we die, but I'm going to go with Jesus. You know, we kind of have shortchanged this guy by calling him Downing Thomas. He was solid. Here, he's, he's just being realistic. I mean, think about it. We can't be too harsh on him because... We're saying, why didn't you just immediately jump to the conclusion that a dead man came back to life? Because if you say it that way, it dawns on you how ridiculous that sounds. It's not that, that Thomas didn't want to believe. It's just that he had seen the crucifixion. He saw the body that was placed into the tomb, and he, he, he believed that the consequences, uh, the consequences of that death 
He couldn't couldn't just jump to the fact that they could be annulled, that the outcome could be changed so quickly. But he says something, and I got to respect him. He's honest. He says, unless I put my finger in his hand, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. I got to respect that guy. Because people mask it nowadays. They're like, well... You know, I, I, I don't have enough evidence. I, I can't believe. I, I just can't believe it because I don't have enough evidence. Listen, we've, we've settled that. There's plenty of historical evidence. There's more than enough evidence to satisfy a genuine intellectual curiosity. What Philip is saying is not, oh, I don't have enough evidence. I can't believe. He's saying, until I get what I need, I won't believe. I saw, I saw a, a, a clip of a, of a lecture uh, a couple of weeks ago given by a, a, a guy that, that debates Christianity in, in a lot of different settings. And he was on a university campus, and he was just interacting with, uh, with the audience. And a guy came to the microphone, and he said, he said I'm an atheist. Well, that's a whole other conversation that you can go. But I really appreciate this guy that was, it was speaking because he said, okay, you're an atheist, so let me ask you this question. If I could give you proof, scientifically quantifiable proof that Christianity is true, would you become a Christian? And he said, no. And I went, there it is. You see... Most conversations that ask for proof about Jesus are made by people who are running a smokescreen for a decision that they've already made. Because when genuine curiosity comes to the cross, the evidence is is overwhelming to a mind open to receive it. And they will come to Jesus. Thomas is not saying, I can't believe. He's saying, I won't believe. He's not right, but you got to respect his honesty. Well, here's how this story is going to unfold. Verse 26, eight days later. Now, that's an inclusive uh, reference uh, in Jewish culture. Uh, you counted the first day and the last day. So eight days later, they're, they're talking about the next Sunday. They haven't seen Jesus all that week, but they've been talking about him. They've been abuzz because he showed up on that Easter Sunday evening. And so probably what happens is the next Sunday that rolls around, they have the Jewish Sabbath And then Sunday, the first day of the week comes, and they say, okay, we're going to do everything just the same. We're going to go to the same place, we're going to gather together, and we're going to see if Jesus comes to to meet with us. Because here, they haven't switched yet from the Sabbath on Saturday to the Lord's Day on Sunday, but they're already beginning to suspect a pattern. And so they meet together on the first day of the week, hoping to see Jesus again. Only this time, everything's the same except this time Thomas is there. They've persuaded him in conversation, you know, hey, listen, you got to come be with us. And, and, and so Thomas is there. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. 
Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be to you. Now there's 10 other guys out of these 11 who are saying, I told you, this is exactly the way it happened last week. I look up, he's there, peace. Only this one is a little bit different. It's been the same up until then. But here, Jesus makes eye contact with Thomas. Almost like he's been listening to their conversations all week long with Thomas saying, I'm not going to believe until I, you know, finger in the hand, hand in the side. (laughs) He said to Thomas, place your finger here. You can just imagine Jesus stretching out his hand. Place your finger here and see my hands. Take your hand and put it into my side. I wonder if Jesus kind of pulled up his robe. Put it into my side and then this, and do not continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Here's what's happening. Jesus makes his way there and Thomas has said, I'm not going to believe. Now, listen, there's no, there's no sin to struggle with doubt, uh, but there is a sin to resolve, to refuse to consider truth. Jesus comes in, and he looks right at Thomas, like he's overheard every conversation that they've had. And he says, Thomas, put your finger right here. No, 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 better. Put your hand right here. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, stop being an unbeliever and start believing. In fact, there's an emphasis here. What it literally says is, uh, he, he, he said, I will never believe. Jesus says, stop choosing, to, to, for choosing unbelief. Start believing. This is an incredible moment because Jesus is presenting Thomas with his only options. You've said, I won't believe until I get certain things. Jesus said, okay, I'm going to condescend. I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to give you what you need, what you think you need to believe. But I'm telling you right now, start believing. And then Jesus makes an incredible statement that really is about us. He says in verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you now believed? Blessed are they who, do not, who did not see and yet believed. You see, we occasionally, I occasionally meet somebody that says, well, I, you know, I need to see it too. I mean, I need to see it myself. I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. Jesus made himself known to credible witnesses. And what we have in Thomas, I think, the only explanation I can have for Thomas's absence the, the Sunday before is that he's probably the most level-headed, the most realistic, the most down-to-earth, well-grounded member of that circle of 12. And I think God providentially kept Thomas away because he would be the hardest skeptic to convince And when he came the next week and saw Jesus, when this skeptic was convinced, now we have a realistic, level-headed, straight-thinking skeptic who is 
convinced that Jesus is alive. We needed this skeptical conversion to conviction that we find in Thomas. Thomas is a great gift to us. But here's the thing, 2,000 years later, if you crave a miracle, if you want God to jump through hoops to prove himself to you, that's not how it works. He has condescended to show himself to people who are credible historical witnesses. At this point now, you are invited to believe in the truthfulness of the word of God and in the testimony of skeptics who became believers. And that is enough. Blessed are those who from now on will believe without seeing. Now, here's where I want us to, to, to really zero in. His confession. Jesus presents himself to Thomas. There's no indication here that Thomas actually touched the hand or the side. It simply says, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. We still have a whole chapter, chapter 21, and we'll get to chapter 21 next week. But let me tell you what chapter 21 is. Chapter 21 is an epilogue. You know, an epilogue is when you get to the end of a book and the primary plot line is complete. But the epilogue is where the author sort of ties up all the loose ends that are left. It's like when you're watching a movie and the screen goes to black and then you have just like a paragraph of words at the end of the movie and it tells you the rest of the story for some of the characters, okay? That's what chapter 21, the last chapter of John, that's really the epilogue. He's gonna just bring us up to date on some of the, the, the characters in this plot. The climax of the book of John is right here. Let me tell you how I know this. Because John is gonna tell us, uh, John has been telling us all through the book who Jesus is. If you think Jesus is primarily a miracle worker, I looked this up. Do you know that there are only 36 miracles by Jesus recorded in all four gospels combined? I bet if I ask you how many miracles Jesus performed, you would have guessed a, a larger number than that. Only 36 miracles in, in, included in all four gospels, and yet in the gospel of John, he only has eight. John's point was not to, be, to write a document that historically um, recorded the miracles of Jesus. His book, his gospel, the point of his gospel was for us to understand who Jesus was. He's been showing us that all along the way, and it culminates in this confession in verse 28, where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Let me just survey the, the gospel of John real quickly for you. In the first chapter, we're told that, 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 that the word was, was with God and the word was God. In the process of writing this whole gospel, we're told that Jesus was active in creation, that the word became uh, flesh and dwelt among us, he was the sin-bearing Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the King of Israel, the new temple, a teacher sent from God, a symbol of God's power exhibited through Moses and the law. 
Jesus is the evidence of the love of God, John 3, 16. He's the savior of the world. He's equal with God. He's the authority of judgment. He's the agent of God, the fulfillment of scripture, the expected prophet, the great I am. He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. He is, uh, he is the giver of life. He is uh, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who is from God. He's the son of man, the consecrated holy one. He's the lifted up one, the glorified one, the preparer of destiny, the one who won't abandon us when he said, I go to prepare a place for you and I'm gonna come back and get you so that you can be where I am. He is the one in whom we abide, who is the basis of the fruitfulness of all of his followers. He's the sender of the helper, the bearer of truth, the crucified king. And now we have Philip saying, he's my Lord and my God. We started in chapter one, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. That's a theological affirmation. In chapter 20, we have what was originally a theological proposition now becomes a personal confession. The word was with God and the word was God. He is my Lord and my God. This is where the book of John comes to its conclusion. Thomas speaks for every generation of followers for 2,000 years. We have to get from the theology of who Christ is to the confession that he's my Lord and my God. And that's the point of the gospel of John. Look at what he says. He's gonna call us to a decision here. In verse 30, John says, so then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, this is the purpose of the book, that you might believe. Faith is not a vague trust of some shadowy character that has no content to it. This is faith. This is saving faith that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the sent one, the Messiah, and that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, to believe that Jesus is the Christ is to confirm his humanity. You couldn't be saved unless somebody just like you lived a perfect life and paid a debt that you can never pay. But he is also the son of God, which means he is fully divine. The God that we are separated from by our sin is the God that took it upon himself to make it possible for us to be connected to him for all of eternity. This is precisely what Thomas's confession affirms, my Lord and my God. I read a story some years ago about the death of a little old lady. She had been born and raised in a Roman Catholic church. She'd gone to Catholic school as a child. And, and some, at some point in her, in her adult life, in reading the word of God, she really came to the conclusion about Jesus that, that she was being invited into a personal relationship with Jesus. He wasn't just going to church and and, and participating in, in certain rituals. 
It was about knowing God and being known by Him. And so as she studied the Word of God over the course of her life, she became a a devout follower of Jesus and and eventually um, drifted from the the church of her childhood and and began to gather and meet with other like-minded believers who, who understood what it was to be in relationship with Jesus. In her very last days, what we would today probably call the hospice period. Her family, her extended family, well-meaning, concerned for her. They asked the parish priest if he could go by and, and visit her. And, and so he agreed and he did. And he came to her house and, and she welcomed him in. And he talked to her and, and speaking about last rites, which is one of the sacraments. He said, he said, would, would you like me to forgive your sins and provide you with absolution? And in the sweet way that only a little old lady can get away with, she said, well, Father, could you show me your hands? She said, sir, you are an imposter. Because the one who forgives my sins has nail scars in his hands. John leaves you with no option here. Jesus leaves you with no option here. The words of Jesus to you in this room today, 2,000 years later, if you're not a follower of Jesus, a chaser of Jesus, if you're not a devout representative of Jesus as one sent out to do his mission, here's Jesus' words to you. Stop being an unbeliever and start believing. That's your choice. And today's the day. The whole book of John has led to this moment. Stop being an unbeliever and be a believer. Our pastors are going to be right here. We would love to just take you to the throne of grace and introduce you to Jesus. Maybe you need to be a part of this church, man. We'd love for you to come stand shoulder to shoulder with us and be a part of what God is up to here. There are 120 men, many of them in our room, in this room right now, that were at Man Venture this weekend. Some of you made decisions about making your home life different, about working on your relationship with your wife, with your children, about being a witness for Christ where you work. I'm going to invite you to come to this altar. And in some things that you thought about this weekend that went through your head, some things that you felt like the Spirit of God was saying to you, I'm going to invite you to come to this altar and kneel down 
and nail those things down so that they're not just good ideas that you once had, but that they become convictions, decisions that you're going to live by. If you need to know Jesus Christ, if you need to be a part of a church that's serious about chasing him, if you need to nail down your walk with him so that you move forward from Easter, not saying, well, I'm glad the season's wrapped up. Now we can get back to normal. No, no. Easter gives us a new normal. And if you're serious about that, make your way to the throne. This morning is your time. Our pastors are here if you want to pray with them. If you just want to come and pray here by yourself, if you want to grab somebody that you're with and ask them to come with you, whatever you need to do, today's the day. The entire gospel of John has led us to this moment. Stop being an unbeliever and be a believer. Father, we come before your throne. We are overwhelmed by the reality of grace, by the one who meets us in our need, who provides a way for us to be forgiven, who created a church for us to be strengthened and to grow in, who put us in a, an army to change the way our generation sees and hears truth. Father, I know your spirit is here. I can feel him. Make yourself known. Draw us. Draw us to the throne where the Ancient of Days is seated and let us find our way home. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.